cultivating operational resilience through people, process, and technology, and rehabilitating your reputation after a security setback. That and the latest news and trends in the managed security space, coming right up on Cyber for Hire. Building bridges between managed security providers and their clients, it's the podcast where MSPs, VCSOs, and end users take a united stand against cybercrime. This is Cyber for Hire. All right. Welcome, friends, to episode number 20 of Cyber for Hire. How's everybody doing today? I'm Bradley Barth with SC Media in New York, and joining me today, 13 time zones away in Japan, is my co-host and partner in cybercrime, Ryan Morris, principal consultant with Morris Management Partners. Uh, Ryan, let me just start off by asking you a question since you do so much overseas traveling. I think the longest flight I ever had was maybe about like 10, 10 and a half hours or so. So I want some advice uh, from you. How do you pass the time on a really long flight so you don't go insane? Well, see, that's the thing, right? A, you try real hard to pass the time, and B, you're probably actually also going to go insane. It's never, it, there's, it doesn't matter how many movies you watch, how many podcasts you listen to, how much you read, how many spreadsheets you work on on the computer. At, at about 10 hours, literally, there comes a point where you look around and go, are we landed? Are we there yet? No, we're not. This one, we were uh, from from Frankfurt over the top of the globe down into Tokyo, Japan, uh, all in. It was about 15 hours. And uh, I will tell you, I, I, they, my, I got to the point where my ears hurt so bad from wearing my headphones that I, I had to just go old school and read an actual book like an actual hard copy book that I had with me that that one got me through until I could you know fall asleep and be delirious before I got off the plane all right well I was hoping maybe you'd have some kind of magic formula for me but I guess there is no magic formula you just kind of have to you know to deal with it and cope however you can uh so fair uh, fair you, you do what you can and and what I will say is uh being six two and a reasonably uh large size individual in this world makes it all that much more difficult when, uh, when 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 I look around the airplane and I see all the folks that are five foot two coming back to Japan, I look at them with great envy because even uh, an economy plus seat that reclines, you know, like this far, that's still actually quite comfortable for somebody that size. But uh, when, yeah. when you put when you put the extra large size human in that chair. There, there is no comfortable position. Yeah, well, a lot of those a- airlines, they certainly do pack you in like uh, sardines and comfort isn't uh, top of their mind. But uh, I guess that's the just the perils of, uh, of, of, of traveling overseas. Um, all right, plenty to cover today as always, but uh, some news just can't wait, which is why we want to share with everyone what's top of mind today. So here's your headline. The German IT services company Bitmark, a big tech player in the healthcare and health insurance sector, shut down its customer and internal systems and its Munich data center following a late April cyber attack. As part of its recovery plan, the company has been methodically and gradually bringing its systems back online based on priority-oriented procedures that take into account uh, individual customer situations and the respective operating center that uh, they rely on. Uh, About 35 health insurance companies are also taking advantage of of an interim solution that that Bitmark has propped up, allowing them for the disbursement of uh, sick pay and 
and other uh, payments uh, directly and allowing them to, uh, to, other, to carry out other critical orders uh, all in a secure environment. Uh, but Bitmark is still warning there'll be some road bumps along the way, noting that the restarting of individual services will bring with it renewed temporary service flaws. So, you know, at, at the very least, it seems like customer and patient data was not uh, affected, apparently. Ryan, why is this top of mind for you? See, I, I can think of three things that made this one jump right to the top of the stack. Number one, um, critical failures happen. A lot of people in the world of, of cybersecurity and data protection, business continuity, we like to talk about that as though it is it's a philosophical kind of a debate, right? You'll get into this with, with some clients where they're like, well, in the hypothetical, when we might be out, how long would it take for us to get back in to full business operation? And we talk about things like recovery point objective and recovery time objective. And hey, we're techies, so we even have fancy little acronyms for those things. Um, it's all just an academic exercise until something legit happens and 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 you made the key point as you were as you were introducing this story uh, they went down in late april as of the first week of may they're still down that's not kidding i i, I would say from uh, from a, a an old data nerd's perspective in this industry um the one thing that we don't do often enough is real time practice for actual severe interruption of service. That's, you know, we, we often talk to people and we say, well, hey, how resilient are your systems? And do you have a business continuity plan? And how soon would you be able to get back online? And everybody's got data. Everybody's got a plan. It's going to take this long. It'll, it'll bring these systems back up and then those systems back up, to which a, a very wise person once taught me that the best question you can answer, ask, the best question you can ask right after that is, so uh, how do you know? Like, it'll take me two days to get back online. How do you know? Well, because that's the way we've scripted it. Cool. You know that old Mike Tyson quote? You know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, these kinds of things happen, and it will take people outside of their philosophical operational boundaries. Uh, and my very first reaction to this story was, we need some very sincere, significant like real-time exercises. Don't just do this philosophically. Your data continuity and your business continuity plan needs to be tested in real time with the risk of things actually going offline. The The second thing that made this one jump up to the top of mind for me is uh, this is not even the first time in the last two weeks that you and I have talked about severe interruptions of critical operating systems in the healthcare field. That trend is accelerating. All the data that we see is, you know, it's not just financial services. It's not just manufacturing, but healthcare systems. That, that might be the most intimate, personally identifiable information that we deal with with our customers. And that stuff is in the crosshairs. People are coming for it. And this is yet again, another example of, it's, it's not like a little mom and pop health records company that manages a few things. You know, hey, we got some patients that drop by the office once a year and get a regular checkup. These are hundreds of thousands of records and customers and employees who are out of their operating comfort zone 
simply because of this downturn. So uh, just because you're big does not mean that you are that you are protected from all of these things. It is possible to knock these big companies down. The third thing that uh, that that really came to mind is the point that you closed with in the introduction. Even though they are coming back online, they are standing back up old-fashioned versions of their services, and they anticipate that there will be basic operational interruptions in those new services as they spin them back up. You know, we spend years fine-tuning our operating systems, our applications, our databases, all the workflow, everything that we use in this business world. We put all the work into making that stuff better. And you look back and you say, can you imagine going back to the way things were two years ago? Like, wow, how would you even survive? Well, the answer is you and unfortunately others in the industry are about to find out what it's like to go in the DeLorean back in time and uh, go back to operating in the bad old days. Uh, that is the bottom line that we're seeing with a lot of companies in severe cyber interruptions. When actual business systems go down, their answer is, well, we're going to go back and operate like it's 2018. And maybe we know what we're doing and maybe we don't. I would argue most companies legitimately don't have a plan for a massive disruption like that. It's time for all managed security service providers to step up, not just the real-time services that you provide, not just the preemptive services, but the potential for disaster recovery and business continuity. A lot of people don't think of backup and recovery as a security protocol. I'm here to tell you, no matter what else you do in cybersecurity, the baseline of everything we do is backup. So let's test those things. All right, Ryan. Very good. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye on this particular story and see if there are any other future developments worth covering. And certainly we want to hear from you if you have any thoughts on this or anything else in our show. So please write to us at cyberforhire at cyberriskalliance.com. Anyway, that's going to be our top of mind hot take for the day. There'll be more news later in the show. But first, it's time for our featured InfoSec strategy topic of the week, presenting our big idea in security, cultivating operational resilience through people, process, and technology. Now, due to a scheduling conflict, I recorded this segment with our guest expert at an earlier time. So please enjoy the following interview that we're about to play for you, and Ryan will be rejoining me for the second half of the show. What's the best way to ensure operational resilience against cybercriminals' tactics, techniques, and procedures? Well, just rearrange the letters in TTP and you get PPT, People, Process, and Technology. This session will examine how organizations can score, benchmark, and improve their cyber resilience through a combination of security processes, proper cyber hygiene and employee behavior, and a robust technology infrastructure. To do it right, all three elements need to be in place. To discuss this further, we'd like to welcome in our guest speaker, Pete Bowers, COO at the UK-based managed security services firm, Norm, where he is responsible for the overall operational and financial functions of the business. 
Pete also oversees customer innovation and success and plays a pivotal role in the ongoing development of cybersecurity and data prevention, uh, data protection services for Norm's growing client base. His previous roles include director at Confido and CIO of Interroot. Uh, Pete, thanks very much for being here today. Glad that you could join us. And as always, we're going to jump right into things. Uh, in the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority uh, recently ushered in new operational resiliency rules for financial organizations. So that happened last year. Meanwhile, in the US, the SEC just recently proposed some new rules, which include requiring organizations under its authority to include third-party providers when conducting their business continuity and disaster recovery testing. So as much as we often think of regulations as they pertain to data privacy and notification after a breach, it does seem like maybe there's been a growing emphasis on the notion of post-attack resilience and recovery. Uh, I'm wondering if you agree with that and would uh, make that same observation. Hi, Bradley. Uh, firstly, thanks very much for having me today. Uh, great, to, great to be here and talking to you. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, r regulation uh, is increasing. And the simple reason why regulation is increasing both in the US, the UK and beyond is because of the increased amount of cyber attacks and cyber uh, threats that are out there. And Governments, uh, regulators realize that they've got to do more to try and stimulate um, industry and organizations to try and put in the right measures, both pre-attack and post-attack, to be able to recover from such an incident. And if you look at the operational resilience um, regulations that came into play at the end of March last year, uh, 31st of March 22, you know, they are focused on making sure organizations, particularly those within the financial sector and uh, governed by the FCA, uh, have robust plans in place to deliver their essential services, um, no matter what the disruption. So operational resilience typically is related to operational elements of making sure they can deliver their services. But key to that is cyber resilience. And, and what plans in place do those businesses and those organizations have in place to, to respond uh, and make sure they're inherently resilient should uh, quite often the inevitable happen. Absolutely. So I know that uh, you want to kind of take us through uh, these three key elements uh, that are all important to operational resilience, looking at uh, resilience and how to do it right from a people, process, and technology perspective. So let's break up this uh, interview segment into those uh, three elements and, and hear some of your, uh, you know, observations and uh, recommendations uh, for, for best practices uh, among all three of those. So uh, I believe in this particular case, you'd like to start with uh, the processes. So let's do that first and uh, talk a little bit there about what you, you would uh, identify as some of the, the, the key best practices that organizations should be following. Yeah, certainly. I think um, when you look at how to make a business cyber resilience, which, as we talked about, feeds into operational resilience, uh, typically there's no silver bullet. And so simply looking at incident response plans or business continuity plans or information security plans, or even buying product and services to 
satisfy technology challenges are never really going to be um, suitable and acceptable, both for the regulator and actually to protect that organization and make sure that, that, that business is resilient. So the way to look at this, and if you look at the way regulators will, will uh, expect businesses and organizations to do it, the way insurers will expect you to do it, the way your customers expect you to do it, is make sure you as an organization are cyber resilient. And to do that, we look at it in the sense that you have to address those those uh, three angles of processes, people, and technology. So from a processes perspective, what I call is the foundation of your cyber resilience plan is what actually is your cyber resilience plan? Are you doing the basics right? Have you got the right policies in place, the right processes in place, both in terms of how you process data, how you handle data, how you handle your confidential assets within the business, and also those technology processes. What do you do when you onboard a new starter? What do you do when you when you offboard a starter? And those typical information security policies and processes that we see within the industry. Uh, in the UK, we have uh, an, a national cyber security standard uh, called Cyber Essentials and Cyber Essentials Plus, which was really the foundation for any business to be able to undertake, to be able to go and project to the outside world that they've got the basics in place. And then, of course, the international standard from an information security perspective is ISO 27001. And that takes a more, much more risk-based approach and allows organizations to really understand the risk within their business understand their, the controls they want to apply and then apply those controls based upon the risk. And that can be different for every single organization. But if you, if you start at that position of getting your processes right, you give yourself a foundation. But that alone, without doing other, other elements, isn't going to secure an organization or ability. It's not going to make you resilient. It will have things written down, but it's key to test those and it's key to constantly evaluate those processes. The next level in the, in the stack, if you like, in terms of making your uh, business resilient is, is looking at how an attacker can potentially um, uh, infiltrate your business. Well, that's typically through your people. We often hear people being called um, the human firewall, or we also call them you know, uh, the, the weak link and, and every, every element in between. But people are key to your business. People help your business work. People actually are, are your business. And therefore, they're an easy target sometimes. Quite often, people are busy, quite uh, occupied. They've got lots of tasks to do. Uh, and particularly, if we look at the current state of the macroeconomy across the globe at the moment, there are challenges in certain sectors of, of industry in terms of layoffs. And so therefore, you create a disruption within that people environment. And you want to make sure that those people understand their obligations in terms of protecting your business. So... Typically, in the past, people of some businesses, some organizations will do induction, tri uh, induction training for security awareness. They will do a once a year PowerPoint presentation. And, and really, that's been proven over, over the past few years to be insufficient. You have to train your people. You have to educate your people on a constant basis. That's either serving them through easy to consume content, whether they're at home, making it relevant in terms of their personal work life since the pandemic uh, that we all experienced. Work, that work-life mix has become even more blurred. Um, people don't go to the office and then come home and switch off anymore. 
it is uh, uh, work life is now completely intertwined and the devices we use and where we actually use them from. So making sure that people are aware of their surroundings, making sure that people are aware of their obligation to protect business data and their employees' data as much as they protect their own personal uh, data, such as their bank information, is really quite important. And that you've just got to try and keep that front of mind uh, so that they're, they're constantly thinking about it. Every time an email comes in, do I click on this link? It just needs to be front of, front of mind. And there's various tools and platforms that allow you to do that. And then it's trying to get an insight of how those tools are working. So if you, in the old days, if you go and present a, a annual PowerPoint presentation or watch people make a video, you typically would have taken a list of who attended. But you don't know actually who understood and who digested and who comprehended that content. And so by testing that on an ongoing basis, both through simple assessment tests, simple confidence tests, or simulated phishing, which lots of people do now uh, to, to, as part of security awareness engagement, to make sure you really understand within your organization who are the people who really do get this and it's front of mind, uh, and, and who really could do with some more assistance uh, in terms of further education or further understanding, because I think there was a recent survey um, towards the back end of 2022, and it's a pretty common number that comes around, around 80, 85% of attacks on businesses uh, are typically done through people. Uh, it's through leveraging phishing or attacking um, senior people within the, within the organization known as whaling, uh, not a great term, but um, uh, in terms of trying to exploit that human factor and trying to infiltrate a business that way, it's still very common. Yeah, because and, it's quite easy to do. Yeah, and absolutely. And 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 Pete, you know, for those who uh, you know may be listening as well, and and saying, uh, you know, anti. Uh, phishing training uh, is obviously a very important security awareness tool, uh, uh, certainly from a, a preventative measure. But you know, how does it also uh, impact my resilience? Well, I, I think we talked about this a little bit, and the answer to that is is that while sure, uh, you know, the training is also meant to stave off attacks in advance. Uh, the training should also cover scenarios of. Uh, you know, if that phishing email actually you gets through into your in inbox, how to properly dispose of it, who you're supposed to alert within your organization, uh, if if an attack does perhaps reach uh, an additional stage, uh, how to conduct a response there. So really, it is as much about um, the the uh, response uh, as as it is also about uh, preventing uh, the phishing attack from uh, from proceeding further as well. It's really, it, it covers both sides of the equation. Absolutely, Bradley, you know, for sure. It, it, a, a, a comprehensive awareness program, if you like, educates the individuals, both on the preventative side and both on the reaction side, because, because it's so prevalent, as I mentioned before, most attacks are, are through that way. So it's important to, to train your user uh, and your employees not to panic, to think, clearly think um, precisely in terms of what to do from when that happens. And similarly, training can go beyond just the whole employee base. You may target training specifically at different functions within the business. So part of the training may be training around incident response. So what happens if the scenarios happen? How do we manage it? How do we inform our stakeholders? How do we inform our customers? How do we form, inform regulators if there's a person? How do we identify for personal information? 
uh, breaches has occurred and we have to inform the regulator uh, across Europe in terms of the GDPR. All that training is really key so that your organization and those people working within it are as prepared as they possibly can be for what is becoming the inevitable. And I think we saw too, and even the way that you started to uh, present uh, talking about some of the key uh, processes that you need to have instituted in your organization for resilience, you so smoothly segued right into the second uh, leg of of this uh, triangle, which is people. Uh, and that just shows how much overlap there actually is between people, process, and technology. There is a lot of uh, overlap there. And so certainly uh, part of that training as well uh, and getting your uh, workforce up to speed is also training them on uh, the processes and controls uh, that you as an organization want to want to want to implement, and so I know that uh, we had talked about even uh, in our last uh, discussion in prepping for this call that you know that can include really a mix of both uh, you know technical measures and then uh, organization organizational measures like uh, various uh, governance policies, uh, and so you know maybe you can also. Um, if we can uh, rewind a little bit and talk a little bit more about the process and how it interplays with the people uh, aspect of things as well, uh, how, how how do you make sure that your your various policies are properly being followed and enforced, and that the technical measures you've impl implemented are being properly used? Well, I think the, the way organizations can do that quite easily is if they adopt a framework and they adopt a, 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 a standard to follow uh, as best practice. So I mentioned in the UK Cyber Essentials, the international ones, ISO 27001, of course, that has a very comprehensive set of controls within within the framework. If a business, even if, if a business adopts a framework like that, it can then go out and get external certification and get external audit to validate those controls are working in the first instance, uh, and that allows you then to go and demonstrate to your stakeholders that you are doing those basics right, you have got them in place. An auditor will come along uh, and test a sample of the controls that you've put in place, but they could be the response capabilities in terms of business continuity plan, they could be the preventative controls you've put in place, they could be how effective the staff training is working, uh, and, and they will look at a sample. I think one of the key things from the operational resilience guidelines, uh, both from the SEC and the FCA in the UK, is making sure the board understands the resilience of the organization and the risk within the organization. So at a 27,001 level, you have a risk assessment uh, of an information security perspective. But if you're deploying the, the three elements that we talk about, processes, people, technology, you should be able to measure how each one of those individual components are working and therefore contributing to any of your overall cyber resilience, as we call it in norm. Um, but I think each of those you talk, uh, you mentioned about them overlapping is really key. And I think where that demonstrates itself best is simply in the Annex A controls within ISA 27001. You have people-focused controls, you have preventative controls, you have reactive controls, and you have technology controls. Uh, and those combined, when they're working together, give you a, a good chance of, of protecting your business, but also being able to respond to it. 
And I think on the resilience side of it is, and the response side of it, uh, the insurance market is a very good place to to follow from a um, from a vantage perspective. Is if you look at the way insurance policies for cyber are being written now, they're as much about having the preventative controls in place as uh, as they are about actually have been able to respond to it to an incident. I how can we stop the losses as quick as possible? How can we get the business back up and running? And so the two are working very much hand in hand, those preventative pieces uh, and, and, and the reactive pieces. And I think when you come into the technology side of it, where we talked about processes, people, technology, the right technical controls are proactive, preventative, and reactive, the resilient uh, element of it. And if on a, pro- on a proactive side of the preventative element, it is understanding where your technical risk lies within the business. So do you understand all the, all the devices that are connected to your environment? Do you understand where they are? Do you understand who's got them? Do you understand what uh, vulnerabilities they have on them? Do you understand what, what they're doing within your organization? And then uh, making sure that you are patching those, those devices, making sure that you're configuring them correctly and that they are secure in, inherently um, and that changes constantly. That changes on an hourly, daily basis as new vulnerabilities are discovered. And then the reactive side of that is, okay, if we've trained, if we've got the processes in place, we've got our people trained, we've got our vulnerabilities understood, what do we do if, if an attack happens? How do we firstly detect it? How do we identify the suspicious activity going on across the organization, whether that's on a device, on a user account in Office 365, on a network or in a cloud environment? What does, what does malicious activity look like? How do we detect it and, and filter it out from the noise? And then how do we respond to it? Do we, do we isolate the environment? Do we shut the port down? Do we block uh, an IP address? Do we isolate the device? Has it propagated out into the wider uh, uh, environment? And therefore, do we need to contain a specific subnet or a network? How do we respond to that? And having those um, playbooks in place, having those response plans in place and testing them is really, really key. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the, uh, again, this really involves people, process and technology, all three of these things. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how uh, having a, a business continuity or disaster recovery plan uh, requires all three of these elements that we just discussed as well? Because it's really everything from having the, the technology and the systems needed to be able to uh, properly uh, you, know, you know restore any of the systems that were uh, affected and to uh, basically to take advantage of any uh, backups or redundancies that you might have. And at the same time, from a process and people perspective, you have to you know train people how to deal with uh, downtime situations. You have to have processes in place for, uh, basically, this is kind of our uh, emergency uh, protocols for right now. Uh, our our website is down, or uh, we're we're a hospital and we can't uh, actively accept uh, patients right now. We might have to divert them. Uh, there's really elements of people, process, and technology to to all three aspects of 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 a, a business continuity and disaster recovery while in mid-crisis and managing that. I'd be curious to hear some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely the case, Bradley. I think, yeah, and it all comes down to the planning of that business continuity plan. It's all on disaster recovery plan. It's all, it's 
if you started at that foundation level I talked about where I, I see processes is is actually what are our key systems, what are our key services we need to deliver, how long can we live without them? So if we if we lost them, and typically, again going back in the day of, of sp- spending my first part of my career on the on the customer side, if you like, to where we work now, and and worry about business continuity plans in it, running a technology function within within various different industries. Um, you typically looked at what were the physical events that could happen. You looked at what would happen if a plane landed on a building. What happens if we have snow or tornadoes or bad weather? What and and then you'd loosely talk about well, what happened with the if the technology environment just stopped. Uh, when servers packed up or data centers uh, weren't available or internet connections typically went down. Now business continuity plans have got to evolve around cyber because in reality, we don't see planes dropping on buildings every day of the week. We can live with inclement weather. Our internet connections have got a lot more resilient. Our data centers have got a lot more resilient. The technology's got a lot more resilient. One of the biggest risks now is is actually cyber. Uh, And so, in those planning and those continuity plans, it's considering what could happen from a cyber perspective, uh, and what is the what's the, what is the outage that I can tolerate. So the same outage conversation, but actually, what is my what is what can I tolerate? So making sure you understand those in the first instance, and so the process element is okay. What are the services I need to provide, uh, and and if they do go down, what are the processes to keep those services running? Uh, so if you take um, your, your medical example, well, if I haven't got systems and, and uh, technology services in place in a hospital, what other services can we provide? Can we still provide triage? Can we still provide uh, outpatient care? Can we still provide, can we go to paper-based? So understanding all those processes and the resilience capability and keeping services going is really key from a process perspective. Then, of course, overlaid on top of that is your people piece. Well, Actually, if something happens, who needs to be involved? What's the team? What's the what's the crash team? If we talk about the medical environment again, what is that emergency team I need on board to help keep the continuity going, keep the services running, but also outside of that, who do I need to inform? Which people need to understand the business continuity plan and then which people need to be told that something is in place? And that, depending on the industry, can be an internal group within your organization, if you're a public-facing business, you're a consumer business, you, of course, have to tell your customers, you have to tell your news outlets and make sure that communication is managed. And then on the technology side is really the disaster recovery pieces, making sure on the preventative side, you've got the right uh, backups in place. You've got, you, you're testing those backups. You understand, have I, if, if I lost all my data, worst case scenario, how long would it take to restore that? And making sure that in the event of a cyber incident, Actually, from an incident response perspective, have I made sure the bad guys are out? So am I restoring a backup that actually has been infected? So I'm just overlaying uh, problems after problems. And quite often you see customers uh, when they come to us from an incident response perspective is they think they've got the bad guys out, they've restored it, but they're still in, in there. And it's the tools and technology put in around that to start isolating that environment and start cleaning it up and, and, and getting it back online. Yeah. Uh, Pete, from your own experience and observations, taking this from a managed security services provider point of view, uh, where typically are organizations uh, 
most in need of help from their managed services provider, the people area, the, the process area, the technology area? Is there one that uh, customers' clientele typically tend to be a little bit weaker at than the others that they need reinforcement in? I think it depends on the industry and it depends on, on the geography as well. Uh, I think uh, certain, if, if certain businesses that are what I call technology-led in terms of the foundation of their business is, is through technology. So they may be an e-commerce platform or they may be a SaaS platform. They inherently understand technology. So they inherently have relatively good technology controls in place and their people and processes aren't particularly robust. Um, if you switch that to uh, uh, manufacturing industries, they're typically traditional IT environments because IT is there just to support the, the um, information workers within the business and some of the production plants, but there's an ITOT crossover. And so quite often their technology controls are in place, uh, are, 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 are sometimes inadequate. But actually what we see the most uh, and the majority of organizations we speak to is that people are doing elements in terms of addressing cyber risk, but they're not doing enough in terms of that holistic approach across processes, people, technology, and therefore they don't have a really good insight as to what their cyber risk is. They assume that because they bought this product or this tool, uh, at, then they're safe, or because they've got 27,001, then they're safe. You know, we. We run red team pen penetration testing exercises within our business. We pen test uh, 27,001 organizations. And in reality, if they're not doing the other elements, they're as easy to get into as somebody who hasn't. So it's really important to keep all those three elements working and have that visibility of what the actual cyber resilience or cyber risk is within the business. Understood, Pete. Well, you know, you bring up the, the notion of risk and that it can be difficult for some organizations to truly uh, assess risk correctly. Uh, what's something that uh, uh, truly represents uh, a grave threat to them uh, and, and what in particular they need to uh, shore up their response to so that they can be resilient. Uh, and, and that really offers us a, a nice opportunity to transition here uh, to talk a little bit more about what you particularly find to be among the most serious threats out here in the, uh, the cyber world. Uh, as we know, and we've mentioned before in previous episodes, uh, the cybersecurity community is full of chicken littles out there that are constantly warning us that the sky is falling, when in reality, some threats are a little bit more over-exaggerated or maybe a little bit more down the road, and some are more prevalent and important to address right away. There are times where the danger is very real. Uh, and I want you to try to help us identify uh, which uh, among the threats that are out there today are the ones that are very real. So with that, I would say let's all gather around the campfire and hear <laughs> from our expert Pete today for a little scary story on what keeps him up at night, what gets his spidey senses tingling. And so with that, we're going to do a little segment that we like to call, What Scares You? So Pete, uh, having uh, having given you this little bit of a, an intro here on what we're looking for, I, I now turn to you and ask you, Pete, what scares you? 
Well, in the in the business that I run today, uh, the biggest thing that scares me is is our customers suffering an attack. Uh, and you, you mentioned people often ask, "What's the biggest threat out there?" Uh, the reality is, there is a threat out there. Will it will it get everybody tomorrow? No. Uh, uh, we talk about the war in Ukraine. We talk about layoffs and disgruntled staff. We talk about specific vulnerabilities in terms of Log4j last year, exchange uh, vulnerabilities, which uh, get big headlines and, and big alerts. But the simple fact of the matter is there is a threat out there uh, and we see that every day on the news. So what we try and do and what I uh, uh, we're constantly talking about is making sure businesses are prepared for that threat. And if businesses are prepared for that, prepared for that threat, then whilst it's never nice when you see a customer, a potential customer suffer a breach, there's some comfort in the sense that actually you can respond to it really quickly. If you think about uh, organizations, and this is the majority of organizations out there, aren't putting adequate controls in place, aren't addressing it holistically, and therefore what, they don't always know if an attack has happened and typically it'll manifest itself days, months uh, after the attack has first um, been in there. Those organ can compare that to those organizations that have put the adequate controls in place whilst it keeps us awake at night, there's a bit of comfort that you've got a team behind you, you've got people responding to it and isolating that and and, and, and building your resilience up uh, as soon as possible. But yes, it's, it's, you have a lot of responsibility in this, in this, uh, uh, in this industry. And so it's, yeah, you sleep, but it's, yeah, 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 it's uh, one of one of the things that you do worry about. Yeah, well, I guess one aspect of that then is if if the concern is about you know what the the, the fate of your your customer should a a cyber attack strike them is is making sure uh, that you know if you are partnering with them that they're taking your recommendations seriously, right? Like the, I, I'm sure at times. Uh, one of the challenges of any managed services provider uh, is the idea that the uh, the, the client uh, may not always uh, take every recommendation uh, as seriously or as expediently as as you would like them to, and and maybe uh, with bringing it back to the whole concept of people, process, and technology, uh, that that maybe they're not uh, emphasizing some of these uh, best practices that that you're. Uh, espousing. So, you know, how how do you try to uh, how do you try to drive home those points uh, to your customers and make sure that they they are uh, taking your your advice seriously? What would be like your your best advice for you know how how to make sure that you are uh, really getting through to them? Yeah. So I think um, it's all about. There's a lot of. Uh, Organizations are complex, particularly though some of our customers are geographically dispersed throughout the world. So they've got complex environments. In the current world we live in, uh, some of those environments are on-premise, some of those environments are in the public cloud, but most of them are somewhere in between. And so that makes quite a complex environment to, to understand. Uh, uh, and their people are distributed at home, in coffee shops, in offices, uh, and, tra and, and traveling around just as much as we did. But... Um, and so I think one of the things and the things that we think is important is making sure within all that noise, you start to focus on what are the key things that you can improve uh, and improve over time and try and prioritize those improvements. So 
within the, the managed service uh, that, we, uh, that we offer our service called Smart Block, um, every month we produce a report that has those highlights in terms of what you should be doing across people, process and technology and where we think the key risks are quant, uh, correlated with what the most emerging threats are. And we'll also, uh, we also provide a, 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 a focal analyst, as we call it, which is a senior SOC analyst, which is assigned to a customer that talks that customer through in terms of what they really should be doing uh, on a monthly basis so that both parties understand and are working together to increase that cyber resilience within the business and increase that preparedness and both preventative and reactive and making sure that actually we are doing everything we possibly can to make you uh, safer than the next guy along, along, the, along the street. All right, Pete, thanks very much. Really appreciate all the thoughts and insight on this very important topic. Uh, glad you could share with us some key best practices around people, process, and technology. Uh, with that said, we're out of time, so that's going to wrap up the first half of our show. Please return for part two of our episode. Uh, my co-host, Ryan Morris, will be back, and we will be tackling our big idea in business, which is all about recovering and rehabilitating your reputation following a damaging incident or a bad customer review. That plus our InfoSec News Rundown and our Dear Cyber for Hire Advice column segment all coming up shortly, so we'll see you in a moment on the other side. Struggling to monitor the growing threat landscape, pressure to reduce costs, security skill gaps, facing compliance issues? These issues can translate to operational, financial, regulatory, and reputational risks to your business. Checkpoint can help. Checkpoint combines an MSSP enablement program, cloud-delivered multi-tenant management, SOC platform, and superior threat intelligence capabilities to give MSSPs the confidence to grow profitably at a reduced risk. Checkpoint is 100% channel-driven. We partner to deliver the best security everywhere. Visit msspalert.com slash checkpoint. All right, welcome back to Cyber for Hire, the managed security podcast. Once again, I'm Bradley Barth with SC Media. In the first half of our show, we talked with Pete Bowers at Norm about improving your resilience through a combination of people, process, and technology. Right now, I'd like to welcome back in my co-host, Ryan Morris from Morris Management Partners, because it's time for us to examine our uh, MSSP business and industry topic of the week. So presenting our big idea in business, rehabilitating your reputation after a security setback. The worst has happened. You failed to protect one or more managed services clients from a cyber attack. Maybe you were even infected yourself, or perhaps a failed product launch or a negative engagement with a customer has resulted in a scathing review. There are lots of ways an MSSP can wind up with a tattered reputation, and sometimes they're not even fully to blame. And that's why a good incident response and disaster recovery plan means not only getting your IT networks up and operational again, it also means salvaging your reputation and not letting this incident define you. This session will look at strategies for restoring your image after something goes very wrong. 
so, uh, Ryan, as always, let's jump right into it. Uh, I think the place to start here is just how bad is a bad reputation? We have seen some precedent of there being instances of companies suffering a, a major breach, and sometimes they take an initial hit with their reputation, but then uh, we'll see that, uh, let's just say if it's more of a, a business-to-consumer type company, uh, we'll see, like, Target is a great uh, example of one where it suffered a, a, a big breach, and eventually, uh, you know, the customers all still kept flocking back, and uh, over the long term, uh, no major damage to business. But do the same rules apply to an MSSP when they experience a damaging breach or they fail to protect a client from a breach that realistically uh, sh they should have caught? Uh, is it as easy for them to come back from something like that uh, with their customer base? See, I, I think you make an absolutely critical distinction there. Um, the difference between the end user organization having a security breach in their own systems, exposing data of their own customers. Uh, in the industry, we like to talk about that as an existential activity, like, oh, no, you suffered a breach. You might literally cease to exist as an entity, except that those consequences literally never happen. Now, every rule exists for the exception uh, to, to be proven, and there are exceptions when small or particularly exposed or brittle organizations suffer. You know, it's the, it's the straw that finally broke the camel's back. Uh, we've seen a number of those things, but as you hinted at, there are some very large, very well-known security breaches where the end-user organization, they apologized, they gave the mea culpa, they said, hey, I'm going to try harder. And everybody still went back to the store. Everybody still subscribes to their software. They don't pay the permanent price. However, as the service provider, you live in a completely different era of uh, expectation and risk associated with these things, right? Like, think about it this way. You mentioned Target as one of the good old-fashioned examples when uh, not just once, Several times they had breaches. We all know about the one that came in from the, the HVAC contractor, but they had other exposures where they were continuously over a couple of years period uh, making an announcement. People had to get new credit cards, whatever. The business of Target is to sell you stuff in a store or in an online environment. Most of the time, you physically get in your car, you go park in the parking lot, you walk into the store, you intended to spend $30, you wound up spending $300. That's their business model, right? Cybersecurity is ancillary, and as practitioners, we want people to take it seriously and believe that it is, quote unquote, mission critical. For a service provider, it is existential. It is literally the reason why we exist. Therefore, the damage to reputation for a service provider in, in one case can be a going out of business event. And, and it's something it, – lots, lots of people debate this in the industry – it's not fair. It's not an equal division of risk and reward. Uh, the end user is is protected and shielded. They can always just point to that service provider and go, what? We trusted the professionals, right? Um, that's not fair. It's not equal. And that's real. 
that that's the bargain we signed up for as as practitioners in this industry. So uh, I think that it's absolutely vital for us to not get complacent just because end user facing organizations don't go out of business when they suffer a reputation damage does not apply to the service provider. We have a higher level of risk and expectation, and we need to live up to that that higher level of expectation. All right, let's continue with the scenario of there being some kind of a damaging compromise or cyber attack of some form. Uh, we can talk about some other uh, scenarios uh, in a little bit, but uh in your mind, Ryan, uh, what's the, the the playbook for when one of these incidents uh, does actually happen? You know, obviously, the best case scenario is is that you nipped it in the bud. But if you didn't, uh, now there's a, a reputation to rebuild. So there's got to be a, a short term playbook strategy here, I would imagine, and 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 long term. Maybe in the short term, you're trying to. Uh, frame for everybody a little bit what happened, uh, put it in perspective. There's maybe a, a PR uh, element to this, uh, but long-term, it's, it's probably more of actually doing the work and proving that this was a one-time mistake and you've learned for, from it and it's, and, it's, and it's not going to happen again. So what's the short-term uh, playbook here? And then what's the, the long-term playbook here? See, it's it's good to look at it in those two contexts because, um, as we've heard guests on our show say before in in interviews that we've done with them, there's basically the old cliche in the industry is that there's two kinds of organizations: those that have been hacked and those that don't realize that they've been hacked. Right? Um, it, it is it is coming for all of us, and it puts me into a frame of mind of before, during, and after. The essential playbook that we have to operate on is. Number one, pre-communicate to your clients, to potential clients, to the media at large that, A, we are doing everything we possibly can, and B, there will be problems, right? Uh, We can't set the expectation of perfection because any little mistake looks like a massive breach of trust. We have to let people know that we're doing everything we can. There are many layers and complexities to our operations, the client's operations, individual user behavior, clicking on stuff, malicious internal hacks, right? The, there is a dangerous world out there and breaches will happen. It's not a question of whether or not they will. It is a question of, A, did we anticipate that? And B, do we know how to recover from those things, right? That's the before phase. The during phase is the exact reason why the whole category of technology around SIM exists. Active incident detection, response, recovery, and management. That is something that, that we have to be very trusted and tried professionals around. The, the build a wall around your data and your customers' data and systems and nobody will ever penetrate. We're all way too mature and grown up to believe that that's true anymore. So it brings us, we don't stop doing the protective, preventive work, but we absolutely have to drill and practice for active incident management to ensure that when these things happen, we can recover as rapidly as possible, get back up and running 
and make sure that there is a recovery plan in place to get the customer back to full operation as quickly as possible. Uh, To borrow the thoughts from the first half of our show, people, process, and technology. Software is a very effective tool for active incident management, but software alone is not going to solve any of these issues. We have to be ready to communicate effectively internally, to follow predetermined and practice procedures, to get the humans to amp up their level of effort and energy, and then let's actually use the tools to recover whenever possible. The after category, before we let people know stuff's going to break. During, we need to be practiced. And, you know, that old uh, Rudyard Kipling poem, you know, if you can keep your mind when all about, about you seem to be losing theirs, that's not an accident or a byproduct. That, that's, that's, the, that's the result of practice under pressure. So that has to be the during phase. The after phase is twofold. Number one is the actual recovery and validation that the data and systems are back up, that they are healthy, and that they are hardened to prevent a similar attack from happening again, right? There's a, there's a technical process of recovery and validation after any of these incidents occur, but it's that final piece of the puzzle where we're really focused today, which is the question of... How are you going to communicate with this client, with other clients, with potential clients out there in the marketplace? Because the fact that you had this breach, that you've recovered from it, that is technical. It's operational. Reputation has nothing to do with how smart you are, with how good you are at your job. Your reputation is not the truth. Your reputation is merely what people believe about you and would say about you when you are not in the room. The reputation recovery is the longest process, and it requires a predefined script of internal, client, and external communication to ensure that we can get people back on side and realize, hey, we told you this might happen. We recovered, we did the technical work as aggressively and as effectively as possible. Now, let's talk about the future and what's next going forward. Before, during, and after is the only way that any of us can live through these kinds of breaches and come out with any semblance of a trusted reputation after the fact. What can help add to the messaging, though, to show that you mean business about making sure that uh, whatever mistakes were made uh, during the process of this attack aren't going to happen again. Uh, do you, uh, for example, uh, do you issue uh, a mea culpa? Do you uh, try to give the incident some context to explain some of the extenuating circumstances that uh, perhaps uh, at least explain or justify some of the the controversial decisions that were made. We've even seen you know, some organizations that have suffered a major breach ultimately, uh, if not clean house, bring in some new leadership, perhaps somebody who has uh, experienced a breach before and done cleanup after a, a breach. 
to show, hey, you know, we're bringing in some some fresh blood, some some people who have uh, been been there, done that before, uh, so that nothing like this particularly uh, happens again. Are, are gestures like that uh, meaningful to an MSSP client audience? I'm I'm curious as to uh, some of the. Uh, uh, messaging and and actions uh post incident uh especially after one that's damaging that an MSSP can take that perhaps does uh sort of pre present some uh kind of a a message to the audience of we're going to do things differently here and what's an empty gesture you know it's it's funny you've probably personally read a hundred or more bad examples of the wrong way to communicate, right? When you when you do the research, when you talk to the people in the industry, there are a lot of statements that come out that they they try to over-explain, they try to point fingers, they try to, but, but it wasn't my fault, man. A after this kind of thing has happened, the bargain we strike in the minds of our customers is we accept that this might happen, and we are willing to pay the consequences if and when it does. Uh, to point fingers, to place blame, to go, it was the client, it was their employees. That is absolutely not going to solve the problem because all that says to other clients is, oh, so if something goes wrong with my, set, with my systems, then you're going to blame me in the process as well. I don't want to deal with that potential blowback in my reputation. So maybe I'm going to go look for a, a more professional outfit, right? The, the key here is to communicate as though the breach is part of business as usual, right? In the before category, we said, guys, this is hard. We're doing absolutely everything we can, but things will still happen. When they happen, we need to be able to communicate saying, we knew that these kinds of things were out there. Our research indicated that this type of attack was present in the environment and it was something that we would potentially deal with. These are the preventive measures that we took and they weren't enough. So here is how we recovered and how we will continue to operate in, in a more resilient, a more protected way because we've had the bad experience, we've learned from it, we've now improved. If the tone sounds like we're passing blame, well, hey, it wasn't me. It doesn't matter whether that's true or not. You've just alienated everybody who may potentially go through that same experience with you in the future. If it sounds blasé, like, hey, no big deal, man, stuff happens, that's overcorrecting and and you will lose a lot of credibility for being obtuse or tone deaf in the in the relationship. There's that happy medium in there that says, we know this is hard work. It is serious. We saw that this was out there, right? We do our homework. We're aware of the things that are going on. We knew it was a potential thing, but it still got around all of the defenses. That's why we work so hard for active incident response. And we have a trusted protocol to bring the client back up and into full operations as rapidly and with as least disruption to their business as possible. Here's the steps we've taken. Here's what we've learned and how we'll be better in the future. Please let us know if you have any questions, right? That tone is something, it's not defensive, it's not dismissive, but it's not reactionary either. 
you made the comment about uh, places where serious things have happened and they've made changes in senior leadership. Um, I doubt that there are very many things that could happen in the business of cybersecurity that would warrant such a an aggressive or drastic action in, in response. If you knew that it was possible and you have the active incident capabilities and you have an actual people process and technology proven method for recovering, verifying, and hardening the systems in the future, then firing senior managers or or leaders in the environment, all that says is either, oh, you guys are actually in control over there and you're freaking out and you're totally abandoning your business operation and your leadership structure because of one incident, that's panic-inducing. That might make all of your clients run away, right? But it also indicates that perhaps the source of the breach was internal, was that individual, either through some deliberate act or gross negligence. Now, if that's true, that's the one exception to my advice that I that I could actually see. If we had a bona fide breach of protocol, professionalism, and trust internally. And it was either we just were literally asleep at the wheel and we didn't see things coming, or it is malfeasance on the part of individuals in the organization. Cut them out fast, be aggressive, swallow it. Don't try to protect. Don't try to slip that stuff under in the, you know, on the late Friday night release in the news cycle, be upfront, make sure everybody knows. And this is what our recovery plan is going forward. Other than those tiny little examples, the the percentages of actual malfeasance are in, in leadership of service provider organizations are astoundingly low. That's it's fairly it's fairly safe to assume that's not why you're actually going to have this problem as a result even the gesture of well we're going to fall on our sword and we're going to take the hit for this thing all that does is trash your reputation all that does is make you look reactionary, out of control, and potentially culpable for the problem. I would never recommend going that far. It's it's a question of, do we have the systems? Do we actually have the methodology that we're testing? Did we practice? Did we, did, like, did we have a fire drill? And we tested it all and it actually worked. Are we regularly checking our client systems to validate that everything is in working order? Then when bad things happen, the answer is, guys, that's why you work with us. We're professionals. We know how to manage the incident. We know how to recover from the incident to validate and strengthen the systems. This is the time you need us more than ever. Let's be in business together. I think that kind of a tone and that kind of a proactive plan that might actually attract customers, right? That might cement existing relationships like, wow, I'm glad it didn't happen to me. But if it did, I'm glad that person is in charge because they actually sound like they know what they're talking about. That's very healthy, I think, in, in, in our environment. So it's something that, that we need to be very proactive about the communication internally first. If that affected customer, other customers, then 
potential customers, right? Stakeholders, if you will. That's the sequence of communication. Um, my, my most strenuous piece of advice during the active incident management phase, be quiet, right? Like there are going to be regulatory requirements. There are legal requirements in certain instances where you must notify the government. You must notify a regulatory body, an industry institution. There, there are places where that's necessary. Do what's required, but do not try to actively massage the situation during the situation. The worst thing you can do is give faulty information like, we think it's this. And it turns out not to be that, and you have to retract, and then that just that's chaos happening. Um, during active incident management, comply with the law and shut up, right? Like, don't be telling people anything more than is legally required. That's what the after phase is for, and that's why you've practiced the incident methodology so that when you need to send these messages out, you, you're not panicking. You already know exactly who to communicate with in each sequence, with which tone, and we do that after the fire is out. We don't talk while the fire is still burning. Sure. Brian, with the last couple of minutes that we have here before we move on to our next segment, let me just bring up the one other scenario that I was uh, hinting at a little bit, which is the idea of you having a customer that, for whatever reason, has become uh, disenchanted with you, doesn't like a particular uh, engagement, isn't happy with the way something went, and now they're starting to perhaps trash you a little bit, uh, whether they're an ex-client or they're still a client, but they're talking to some of their peer group, members of their peer groups and saying, you know, don't use these guys, don't use this MSSP service because uh, XYZ, kind of giving an anti-testimonial in a way. Uh, what do you do in that situation to perhaps help uh, avoid the, uh, the spread of these uh, negative reviews? How do you deal with that particular client? Uh, how do you perhaps uh, nullify some of the, the negative effect that uh, the, these bad reviews might be having on your reputation? You know, in, in most cases, legally speaking, the best practice is take your lumps, right? Because uh, there, there are certain schools of thought where people are like, well, I've got a contract with you and it has a non-disparagement clause and you're not allowed to say mean things about me. You know, that might be included in the verbiage of your contract, but trying to enforce it makes you look petty and small. And what you have to be able to admit is not everybody's going to be happy with us, right? In, in the truest sense of, you know, be careful what you wish for because you might actually get it. What we have wished for as service providers is the opportunity to be trusted with something that is so serious and critically important to the business operation that the client can't be trusted to do it themselves. They outsource to us because they are not as professional and as capable as we are. When you take on that level of risk and trust, there will be black eyes. You will take a hit. Um, the, the major extent that you can usually go to is to uh, find out, you know, A, if somebody is doing that, who is it? Meet with them directly as soon as possible. Ask for a clearing of the air. Say, hey, what is it that you are dissatisfied with? Is there something that we can do to rectify and get you back to whole? If not, then I will initiate our disengagement protocol and we will allow you out 
of the contract without further pe- penalties, right? You're not going to be in breach. We will mutually agree that you will be uh, moving on as soon as possible. We have a plan in place for disengagement. Obviously, that's one of the communication protocols that we have to anticipate. In the aftermath, when we're communicating with existing clients and with potential clients, people will say mean things about us in that environment. We need to be able to say it's a very difficult environment. We knew that this was a potential risk. We did everything there that could possibly be done. Here's how we managed the active incident. Here's how we've recovered and verified that things are better. Here is how we will operate going forward. We are happy to have this conversation. I think that that tone can prevent a lot of lasting impact because you know what? Uh, what's the old uh, statistical reality that uh, a satisfied customer will likely tell one person, a dissatisfied customer will tell somewhere between six and 10? That's life. We deal with things where emotions run high because risk is meaningful. And if it has very significant and expensive impacts on customers, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, that people say mean things about us. If you can't handle that kind of bad-mouthing in the marketplace and you don't know how to be resilient and professional and communicate through that, hey, you know, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen is – my last cliche in today's conversation. <laughs> All right, everybody, that's our thought process. What do you think about it? We obviously have uh, a million ideas that we can't fit into the time of today's program. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are. So please reach out to us, Cyber for Hire at CyberRiskAlliance.com. That's our email address. You can reach us through our show page as well. What are your experiences managing reputations after negative security situations. Do you have best practices? Do you have uh, horror stories to tell? We would love to get your advice. We'd also like to be able to commiserate with you when and if that is necessary. So please reach out and let's keep this conversation going. Now, we want to move into our next segment. And uh, this is what we call Dear Cyber for Hire. Uh, This is our advice column segment where we get to play marriage counselor between MSSPs and their clients to help mend fences, make sure people love each other whenever anything might go awry. So the letter that we're going to share today has been dramatized for the purpose of protecting the innocent, but make no mistake, this situation is as real as possible, and we hope to be able to provide you with some advice on how to manage through this part of the relationship between you and your clients. Bradley, what is today's drama? All right, Ryan. Yes, well, we are back with more juicy MSSP melodrama. And this one comes from the provider side of the relationship. So, fellas, cue the music. Dear Cyber for Hire, Awaken me from this terrible nightmare. My once honorable partner has turned to a life of delinquency. No, they're not out there committing crimes, although I certainly feel robbed. Because you see, my client is extremely delinquent with their payments. Multiple months behind, in fact, and I'm starting to feel like the proverbial doormat. If they don't settle up soon, 
I may have to lay down the law, but I'm afraid of looking like the bad guy when I really do need their business. How do I get my partner to pay up? Pennilessly yours, desperately demanding delayed, deferred, and delinquent dinero disbursements in Dallas. Uh, Ryan, is there a tactful yet effective way of getting a delinquent company to settle up? At what point do you even maybe, you know, put a hold on your services or enact some kind of consequences for not getting paid? You know, th think about it this way, Bradley. Can you imagine the consequences if you just woke up one day and flipped a switch and turned off your managed security services for a particular client? Um, not only would that not be graceful not only would that not be you know uh, unflappable professional in the in the environment that we hope to come across as that could probably get you some legal consequences because as we've been saying today um you do something mission critical and if you just whip, turned it off one day and stopped providing that service you are going to cause vulnerabilities exposures and potential business problems that the client cannot recover from, even if they are in arrears in their, uh, in their payment with you, just turning them off one day without opportunity to cure, without notice, without forewarning and preparation, that is going to be the fastest path to a courtroom for your service business, unfortunately. This is another case of before, during, and after. You begin with the after part of it. When this happens, you know that you need to communicate with the client that, hey, we are beyond the point of what is acceptable. We need to look for a planned disengagement. You know, let's use the Gwyneth Paltrow, the uh, conscious uncoupling with, with our with our customers. Um we know that that's going to happen. So how can we do that as smoothly, as systematically as possible without exposing ourselves to risk or our client to undue exposure and risk in the marketplace? That's something we need to script. We need to know step one, step two, step three. How do we wrap up their database and all of their user information and pass that along to an internal person of responsibility. If they're moving away from us and to a new service provider, how will we do the transfer of information and the cutover so that the service does not have unnecessary interruptions? That's a little bit of communication process, but that's an awful lot of I's and T's to be dotted and crossed in the, in the technical part of that decommissioning process. That's not something we should figure out as we go. We should script that very, very carefully. That's the after phase, right? Unfortunately, there are times when customers just don't pay. You got to go and you need to know how that is happening, which begs the question in the during phase, when they go from up to date to not up to date, how do you manage through that process? My answer is there is such a thing in this world as bad revenue. There are bad customers. There are bad clients. There are bad contracts. I know it feels like we're going to pay a price by losing that customer. They're, they pay us sometimes. We need their money most of the time, right? Uh, we feel like that's going to cause us a problem. I can tell you from bad experiences that keeping that non-paying client around for too long causes more problem, more disruption to 
other parts of your operation than it is ever worth in cash, let's make sure that we have very clearly communicated standards and that we stick to those standards without variation, right? If it is net 30 and you get a, guys, we're about to turn your service off net 60 and uh, we are initiating our protocol net 90, the protocol is done, you guys are gone and somebody else is responsible for your services, pick your own dates, right? Some people are going to be net 10, net 20, net 30, because they don't have any tolerance for late payment. Others are going to be a little bit more forgiving, go 30, 60, 90. I'm not here to tell you what your personality is, but I am here to say, when you set those numbers, you communicate them clearly to your clients and you absolutely positively never vary from those expectations or you will become the doormat, right? Which gets us back to the before category of how do you make sure that customers know what your threshold is, understand their responsibility, and are not likely to fall into delinquency to begin with? Let's just put it this way. A lot of people in this industry make the mistaken assumption that because I have a contract that I will never have delinquent receivables. I mean, it's not like a purchase, right? It's they signed a contract. They pay me on the first of the month, every single month. Contract means it's always going to happen, right? Um, If that were true, there would not be lawyers in this world. (laughs) And we all know that there are. That means that you will, unfortunately, probably experience this at some point. What we need to do is to communicate ahead of time with our customers this this is the service we will provide. These are the financial terms and conditions. These are the consequences that happen if and when there is something that, that goes awry in that process. I don't like accounts receivable and collecting on delinquent accounts. You don't like it. I've yet to meet a technical professional who doesn't break out in hives when they think about that kind of a process. You know what? That's one of the really good reasons to have a CFO, to have an accounting professional, to outsource to an accounting professional service provider. Have somebody else be the bad guy. You get to be the visionary. You get to be the operational guru, the one who's here to maintain good and happy client relationships. And it's really good to have a bulldog on your team so that when things go wrong, they follow up with a very friendly and professional tone immediately on the first day of delinquency and then again the following week, the following, et cetera, right? Don't put that into your operational dynamics. Make that a dedicated professional function that somebody else on your team gets to be the mean guy about, right? Uh, Outsourcing is good. That's why we have jobs as service providers. There are other service providers who can do that gnarly piece of business for us as well. Or, or hear me out here, Ryan, uh, sending some big, burly, brass-knuckled enforcement goon to your client's headquarters and, you know, being like, it's a nice database you have here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely true. You know, uh, we did observe lawyers exist. So do cousins Tony. Right. Uh, there, there are there are many cousins named Tony in this world and, and stuff happens. I don't want to have that attached to my reputation, but uh, I do know that there are people who do have that attached to their reputation. 
I don't want to go afoul of those people. So, you know, it's, it's always good to uh, let people know when you sign contracts with them. It, it's funny, right? Like that's the moment of truth where people really start to learn whether or not you mean business and whether they take you seriously in the yeah. terms and conditions of a contract. Um, bring your lawyer. Right. Like that's not just a salesperson activity or you as the leader of the organization. Uh, when we sign contracts, we bring cousin Tony with us to the meeting and he smiles and he's happy. He, he's leaving all the brass knuckles in his pocket at that point. But everybody knows who he is and why he's at the table so that they are not likely to run afoul and get another visit when Tony's not quite so happy. Sure. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, another relationship saved. Uh, hopefully our listeners have learned from this and don't make the same mistake. And remember, if you've been struggling with your managed security services relationship, whether you're the user or the provider, we want to hear from you. So please write to us at cyberforhire at cyberriskalliance.com and we might use your letter in a future episode. In the meantime, as any security practitioner can tell you, there's no shortage of headlines filling up the cyber news feeds every single day. So we wanted to highlight a few items that we curated just for you in this lightning round that we call the security detail. And headline number one goes to you, Ryan. Google has launched a new cybersecurity certificate program. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that, would you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So in the world of there are 755,000 odd open positions in cybersecurity just in the United States. Um, it's good to see somebody do something tactical. Now, uh, Google, a number of years ago, it actually started in 2018. They launched a program with a limited number of certificates that were based on best practice in industry for very specific job functions. They looked at data analytics. They looked at project management, at UI, UX design. These are things that they looked around and said, hey, there's not enough of these professionals. So let's do a training program. Now, What's interesting about their program is not just the curriculum, well, which is good because, I mean, think about it, right? Like Google does UI, UX design and data analytics and project management. If there's anybody in the wide world who might know about those topics, it's probably the people who already work at Google, right? That, that, that's a very good assumption to make. So they took good curriculum. They put it out there in a digital format. They made it infinitely available to anybody in a, in a digital on-demand environment. And what's more, they made it surprisingly, startlingly affordable, where you could actually get through this program, obtain a certificate, and be able to improve your job prospects. But they went a step further here, and this is where I think it's very, very interesting and important. What Google said was, if you are a person out there in the world and you complete this certificate and you receive that endorsement from Google, Google will treat that credential as equivalent to higher education requirements for an open job position that they're trying to fill, right? If it says must have four-year degree and you go to Google and say, but I also have a Google certificate instead of a four-year degree, Google says, well, if we don't stand behind our own training, why would anybody else? We'll hire you on that basis. That's a bold step. They have now 
added cybersecurity to that program in just the last couple of years uh, in their uh, original certificates that Google has put out there. They've put through more than 150,000 individuals through this program, and their goal is to amp that up aggressively. Google's not going to solve all the problems in the world. Everybody still needs all hands on deck to fill these job positions, but this is good news. This is a step in the right direction. Kudos to the Google folks for the certificate program, and uh, everybody else should be inspired. Let's see what else we can do to also fill those 750-odd thousand open positions. All right, headline number two, Bradley. Um, Survey recognizes human talent as a vital aspect of incident response. We like to think we're important in the process. What does the research say, Bradley? Well, the the research actually agrees with that notion. Uh, In a survey of security and IT professionals recently conducted by the Cyber Risk Alliance, 73% of the uh, respondents who participated said that their uh, place of employment has an incident response playbook. Uh, Now, a bit of a smaller number, only 63%, said that they had a specific team in place dedicated to incident response, such as a SOC or a CERT. And yet the organizations that do have a team in place gave themselves uh, the highest incident response readiness scores amongst all of the participants in the survey. So in keeping with that people, process, and technology theme from part one of our show, we can see how having the right people in place can also ensure that some of the processes that you've also instituted and established uh, help those processes uh, work uh, more efficiently and more properly. Uh, The problem is, of course, that talent is scarce, as we've talked about many times. Uh, 49% of respondents identified a lack of qualified IT or security staff as their biggest IR challenge amongst the most uh, among the most coveted skills that they seek from IR staffers uh, problem solving was number one followed by team skills uh, for more on this research uh, I would encourage you to register for SC media's May 2023 incident response e summit a virtual conference uh, which is currently available for uh, viewing on demand uh, on the SC media website all right uh, headline number three uh, courts and 911 services disrupted following a ransomware attack on Dallas. Tell us more, Ryan. You know, uh, earlier today, we made the comment that bad things happen even to very large and vital operations out there in the world. Uh, earlier, it was a healthcare example. This one is the, the actual city of Dallas, Texas. Um, imagine a world where police can't communicate, courts can't function, 911 cannot receive calls, and there are other critical systems that are associated with their with their daily operations. And those things were compromised by ransomware causing widespread service outages. Um, you know, if if I find myself in a position needing 911 and I call and you can't help me out in that situation, um I'm sorry our servers are down because we had a ransomware attack is not a, a response that I'm going to be happy to receive. Uh, this is a call to all service professionals that deal anywhere in the public sector. Uh, you and I have talked at length before, Bradley, about critical infrastructure and these operating environments. 
we looked at that from a federal systems point of view, from a from a gas and electric point of view, from all of the things that keep the lights on and keep us safe in this world. Uh, my advice is state, local, city, right? State, county, city, and right down to uh, city councils, right down to town councils, uh, any neighborhood HOAs. These are operating bodies that exist for a reason. And they need a service provider who will come in and say, let's do an audit here on your system. A, let's figure out if you've got any vulnerabilities. B, let's do a little cybersecurity preparedness training for your people so they don't click on things like this. And let's put in place a resilience and recovery plan to ensure if bad things happen, you can get back up and running as quickly as possible. Uh, one would like to have assumed that the city of Dallas, Texas, of all the cities in the in the great 50 states, would have been large enough to have had a plan like that. Turns out, not so much. So if Dallas didn't, I'm thinking there are many other cities, little towns, local to you as a service provider, that need a phone call as soon as possible so that we can prevent this and other similar situations from happening again. Okay? Finally, headline number four, Bradley, uh, state of cybersecurity, CRA research findings. Um, what, uh, what else can, can we learn from the Cyber Risk Alliance research that is just being published? Uh, yes. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. It's this 2020, <clears throat> excuse me, 2023, uh, global state of cybersecurity study, this particular one with a focus on the, uh, the U S uh, this, 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 uh, research was, uh, published, uh, in conjunction with, uh, InfoBlocks and contains some of the, uh, survey responses from approximately 1300 security, uh, pros, uh, all really looking at, uh, some, some trends, uh, following the, uh, the, the pandemic, uh, how the, the, the work from a home culture and, and, and security processes around that uh, continue to proliferate. So since the start of the pandemic, uh, approximately uh, half of uh, all organizations uh, have uh, responded uh, to the needs of the remote workforce and, and, and customers by uh, fast-tracking uh, digital uh, transformations. That's about 52%. 45 uh, percent added resources to networks and databases, and 44 percent increased support for customer portals. Uh, this all according to an SC Media uh, article from Steve Zurier that uh, did a nice job of, uh, of summarizing uh, this particular research. Uh, also, about a third of respondents said that their organization has hired more IT staff, uh, also uh, moved more apps to third-party cloud providers, and placed network and security controls uh, on the edge. So uh, these are all just continuing trends that we see that uh, uh, basically the, the work from anywhere is, is not going anywhere. We discussed this a little bit actually in our, on our previous episode. Uh, a couple of more little uh, interesting points. In the past year, 51% report, reported that their organization added VPNs or firewalls and cloud-managed DDI servers uh, to their networks. And uh, Bring your own device trend also continuing about 48% of respondents reporting uh, remote employee-owned devices being added to their networks. Uh, among the uh, the greatest security concerns related uh, to uh, the prominence of the remote workforce, uh, that includes at the top of the list data leakage, uh, ransomware, 
cloud attacks and attacks through remote worker connections. Uh, those are among the most lingering concerns. Uh, all right. Well, that's that. But uh, we have one more news item to go. And it is, drumroll please, our irrelevant news item of the week. Now, this is a real news pitch that Ryan or I have received in our inboxes for reasons that are entirely inexplicable to us. Are you ready, Ryan? I am ready. All right. Well, with summer approaching, interest in pickleball continues to surge. In fact, the number of people playing pickleball grew by 159% over three years to 8.9 million in 2022. Any interest in covering pickleball search data compiled by keyword research firm Senrush or Connecting with pickleball equipment company Just Paddles? Well, no, I don't have any interest in, in that because uh, we're a, a cybersecurity company, thank you. But I do recognize that pickleball has become uh, this really huge, crazy phenomenon. It's this, uh, it's like the Goldilocks racket game. It is a smaller court than tennis. It is bigger than ping pong. Uh, have you been sucked up in this fad at all, Ryan? Uh, you know, I... I play. I am not obsessed. It, it is something I, w I will absolutely endorse exactly where you were going. Anybody, even without skills to play tennis, can absolutely pick up this game and have a very good time. Uh, what I'm fascinated by is not just how many people are getting involved and how frequently they're playing. Uh, I actually have a, a friend who started up a new business in refinishing basketball and tennis courts to make them into pickleball courts. And uh, he's booked out literally six months in advance uh, mm -hmm. on these services. So uh, you, you, can, you can absolutely vouch for the fact this is growing. Wonder what I think is the most interesting part of this the number of HOA organizations that are now outlawing pickleball from courts <laughs> that are too close to residence units. Because, uh, Bradley, if you've played pickleball, not only is it super fun, but you will also acknowledge it's not quiet, right? Uh, yeah. It's a hard paddle and a hard ball on a hard court. Um, and people whoop and holler and they enjoy themselves. Um, uh, apparently, one of the good things about tennis, not, not only do you actually need to be good at playing it, but it comes with the presumption of decorum associated with playing that game. Um, I'm not aware of any presumption of decorum when it comes to pickleball. <laughs> yes, well, I see that could be confusing, though, if a member of the Homeowner Association says, I'll see you in court. Well, now, are they saying I want to play or are they saying, yeah. you know, I'm... I'm gonna I'm gonna take you to court and uh, and 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 challenge this uh, pickleball court being uh, placed a little bit too closely to my living room. Um, I I have not personally played pickleball myself. I would be curious to try. I would say maybe the most uh, fad like sport that I've tried recently, and I think the fad kind of has past a little bit, uh, was I tried curling not too long ago. And that was really big a nice. couple of Olympics ago uh, when the U.S. Uh, won. And, you know, and, and everybody was like, oh, these guys are just like us. Like, uh, I don't really need to be an athlete uh, to, to, to curl. And uh, I know I think that's a little bit of the appeal to pickleball, too, is, I mean, you can be in shape, but also this really appeals to people of all uh, ages and physiques. So uh, considering I'm not particularly in the best physique, maybe a pickleball would be a good thing for me to pick up. 
but see, I uh, think we, I think it's a great it, it's a great pastime for you to to pursue there, Bradley, because it is it is very fun, right? But in yeah. in exactly the same spirit as curling, um, it's a sport that you get better at the yes. more you drink. So uh, <laughs> I will say, uh, if if the phenomenon of curling has has abated a little bit in the United States, for the sake of our friends north of the border in uh, in Canada, oh, it, it not only is it not abating up there it's more popular than ever and it's a you know when you're outside on ice in the winter and you're playing a game that involves an awful lot of standing around you know the it's almost like official issued equipment right like you can't play that game without a drink in your hand it would be it would be unwise to do that without a beverage so I am I am on team curling for yeah. sure. All right. Fair enough. Uh, although I do say that a, a little too much drinking, you might be a little tipsy, and then I'm not sure you really want to be in a giant slippery patch of ice when you have already don't have maybe your best sense of balance. But what do I know? Uh, all right. Speaking of pickleball, uh, we're in a little bit of a pickle right now because we are definitely out of time. So we're going to have to wrap things up. But don't worry, because we'll be back again soon enough for episode number 21. Uh, meanwhile, feel free to check out even more cybersecurity podcast content on the SC Media, MSSP Alert, and Channel EDE websites. Until next time, I'm Bradley Barth. And I am Ryan Morris. Please reach out to us via our show page and our email address at cyberforhire at cyberriskalliance.com with any of your comments, questions, and insights about the business of cybersecurity. And then we'll be happy to keep this conversation going on the next episode of Cyber for Hire, your inside source for cyber outsourcing.